I do want to mention a couple of follow-up things to the announcements. Um, as with all of us, we do uh, grieve with the Petersons and with Marilyn and um, just recognize uh, a faithful life. And so we do, we do celebrate uh, Lyle's faithfulness and his, his ministry, but we, we love you guys. Um, the other is many of you probably don't know, but when I was in high school, maybe a little before, I was going to be a detective. And when Mitch made the announcements this morning, I realized, I gave a warning about the Petersons announcing they're going to leave. And I was concerned about Lance and Jenna, somebody doing something to them. And then lo and behold, coincidentally, Eric and Lori are bruised and battered. I am going to get to the bottom of this. I don't believe for a second that they fell out there. So whoever it is, who took out their vengeance on Eric and Lori, we will avenge them. Ice, I'm sure it wasn't ice. So today, we have our final lesson in the book of Romans. My notes say hold for applause. I might need to get a new sermon writer. Um, and so we probably remember that there are these two kind of pressing questions that Paul is answering as he writes to the church in Rome. And the question is essentially this is, how are we to put, how are we put into a right relationship with God? And how does this new relationship impact how we live? And so Paul really is unpacking these questions. And, and it is the second question that really drives the first. A lot of times when we talk about Romans, we, we think it's all about number one. But he answers that first question in order to help move and motivate people into the right kind of living. So if you really want to know what Romans is about, there's two places that you can go to figure out what it's about. You can either go to the beginning or you can go to the end because there are these themes that are echoed. And as you listen to those themes repeated, you get a very clear sense of what Paul is trying to address. Since we're doing our last sermon, we're going to focus our energy on the last part. But you may come to find there's a lot of connections with the very beginning chapter. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 15, Paul writes, Nevertheless, on some points, I have written you rather boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. And when Paul talks about this grace here, he's not talking about broad or general saving grace. He's actually talking about the grace of his calling. He's talking about the grace of his ministry. It's a language very similar to Romans 1.5 where Paul said, Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. So Paul realizes God's grace has shown that he's been given a job. He's been given a mission. He's been given a, a responsibility. And so if we continue in Romans 15 verse 16, we'll see what his graciousness was called for him to do. He was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And if you look at these words that I have in bold, it becomes very clear that Paul is borrowing words that would normally belong in either the temple or the sacrificial context. And it seems strange that Paul would go there and he would use these words. And so Paul is, in many ways, he's using the priestly service as a metaphor for his own apostleship. He's using it as a, as a way to paint a picture of what his ministry looks like. And so maybe we need to remind ourselves of what it was that the priest would do and what was involved in sacrifice. Of course, the priest was the one who put the sacrifice on the altar. 
And the priests knew that there were certain kinds of offerings that were acceptable. If a person brought an animal that, that was diseased and was near death and had a broken leg, the priest would know, oh, I'm not going to offer that to God. That is not an acceptable offering to God. And so as you think about the temple and you think about sacrifice, there's an emphasis on purity. There's an emphasis on cleansing. And if you were to ask a Jew in the first century, what, what's the opposite What's the opposite when you think of purity and when you think of cleansing? Their answer would probably be the Gentiles. The Gentiles represent everything that is antithetical to the temple culture. And so Paul describes the Gentiles in these ways. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sounds like a pretty good group of people, huh? So if you're thinking temple, you're thinking sacrifice, you're thinking cleansing, you're thinking purity, the exact opposite of that would be these Gentiles and their lifestyle. Because of that, the temple in the days of Jesus had these different sections, and the outer section you'll see circled there is called the Court of the Gentiles. In other words, if, if we're going to honor God, then even those who are God-fearing Gentiles need to be f as far away from possible from the most holy place. Because if you think about temple and you think about sacrifice, you, you, you realize that, boy, these guys just need to be kept, kept on the outskirts. In fact, in 1871, archaeologists found what they've called a temple warning subscription, inscription. Oh, we're going to go back there. And the inscription says this. No stranger is to enter within the, uh, you know, there's this big word that I don't know what that is, balustrade. It's the railing around the temple enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. The stranger there re refers to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles dare cross anywhere into the, the holy places of the temple. Guess what happens? They're out. Because if you want to be pure, if you want to honor God, then you keep the Gentiles as far away as possible from the things of God. And then Paul comes along, and he goes into the temple. You may remember this. He, he goes in the temple, says that they seized Paul, shouting, fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere, our people, our law, and this place more than that. He has actually brought Greeks into the temple, and he has what? Defiled this holy place. And how does one defile the holy place if Greeks are to come into the very temple area of God? So Paul talks about this temple culture. He talks about this context of sacrifice, and he uses it to describe his ministry. And so here's what he says. Again, this is reading Romans 15, 16. That he is to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified, or made holy by the Holy Spirit. When Paul talks about his sacrifice as a priest... The offering is not the offering that the Gentiles bring in this passage. The offering is the Gentiles themselves. In other words, Paul is saying, I am a priest for God, and what I'm going to put on the altar are the Gentiles. 
The very people who in the old law couldn't even come in to the temple. Now Paul says they're going to be put on the altar. And, and the concern would be, but that sacrifice can't be made holy. There's no possible way that the Gentiles can be an acceptable offering to God. And yet Paul says his ministry is to bring Gentiles in and to offer them to God as people who have been made holy. You may remember what Romans chapter 12 verse 1 said. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is saying, I have a calling to be a minister for God, a priest. And what I will put on the altar are the Gentiles. And in order for Paul to do that, he needs to know he is putting on the altar those lives that have been changed and transformed by the gospel of God. Another way that Paul speaks about his apostleship, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, to bring about the obedience of the faith among the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Brings up that theme again in 15, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Sometimes we think about this phrase, obedience of the Gentiles, as a shorthand for kind of getting saved or being baptized or being made right. But Paul's clearly talking about something else different because in the first case, he says he wants to bring about obedience of the faith of those who belong to Christ Jesus. So obedience of faith actually involves these two steps or these two parts of the process. First, it does, in fact, involve being made right with God. How are the Gentiles to be made righteous before God? How is it that they are saved? And that's what Paul answered in Romans 1 through 4. They're made righteous in the exact same way that the Jewish people are. By the death of Christ. And by those who are saved by faith in that sacrifice and in that gift. But there is a second stage, a second thing that Paul expects. Those who are saved will enter into new, transformed, and sanctified lives. So Romans chapter 5 through 8 is about how the Gentiles come to live lives that are acceptable to God. See, if Gentiles were simply converted and simply forgiven, but continued to do all of those things in Romans 1, Paul would say there's a problem with the gospel because the gospel leads to new and transformed lives. And the question has been, well, how are these stages completed? How does it happen? And so Paul has some, some objectors out there. Because some people will say this first, restoring relationships with God. Some people will say, the law does that. And Paul says, no, the law doesn't do that. What does? The gospel brings people into relationship with God. And there are some that Paul will convince that it is the gospel that brings people into relationship with God. But then when you're talking about this new and transformed life, they'll say, now we need the law in order to bring about sanctified living. And Paul says, no, the gospel is enough to bring people into relationship and the gospel is enough to transform lives by and through the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, the answer all the way through the process is the gospel does it. The gospel does it. So Paul makes clear this message in his final words to the Romans. This is Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Some people are a little bothered by the language Paul saying my gospel as if there's this gospel and that gospel and you just choose which one. What Paul is talking about here is the gospel he's been preaching in Romans. He's talking about the very specific way it impacts how we live. 
there are some people who talk about the gospel in a way that it doesn't impact how they live. And so Paul says that this is a gospel that can strengthen them. He says it is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For Paul, the gospel celebrates new living and new life, the obedience of faith. Paul is not just concerned about people getting forgiven. He's concerned about people living new and righteous, sanctified lives. And so Paul, as a priest, will only give that which is sanctified, the lives of these Gentiles who have now converted, who now follow Christ and who are being made righteous by him. And this brings us to the third major theme in Romans, which is Paul says there's an implication. There's something that happens when a person is transformed by the gospel. And that implication is that the the relationship that was once this enmity and hostility between Jews and Gentiles, that's going to be broken down. And there's going to be a new relationship of unity. There's no reason that Christians of every creed and every color and every nationality ought not to be able to live in life with one another. In fact, for Paul, in Romans, the litmus test of a transformed life is how do you relate to others in your church? specifically others who might be on the other side of the fence in terms of Jew and Gentile. Paul is saying, if the gospel does what it's supposed to do in your lives, it's going to result in creating a sense of unity where there wasn't unity before. It's going to start to ebb and flow in everything that we do. Speaking of the Jew and Gentile relationship, Paul talks to them about some of his travel plans, and at the heart of it is this understanding of unity. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Archaea have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this. Indeed, they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered them what has been collected, I will set out to you by the way of, on the way to Spain." You've probably seen this word for sharing, koinonia. It's a word that people often use in discussions. And it means, you know, essentially fellowship. But this concept of sharing their resources, um, one Bible scholar says, is, is entering into a mutually beneficial relationship. When you see documents about business ventures coming together, the language there is going to be they shared their resources. When they talk about marriages, the language there is they shared their resources. One of the things that that at least I recommend to to newlyweds who are getting married is that you need to get a joint checking account. That means whatever I own, you now own. Whatever you own, I now own. It's a shared fund and a shared account. That's the exact concept that Paul is talking about here. He is saying that the Jews and Gentiles, because of Christ, now are sharing in the same resources. It's like they're married. And so Paul has this vision of if the gospel comes, it breaks down the divisions between Jew and Gentile. And now we realize, man, whatever kept us at bay, those things no longer keep us apart, that there is to be unity between us. And so Paul invites the church in Rome to join him in, uh, in praying. Uh, well, yeah, we're going to just move past that. 
All right. I think I skipped a slide here somewhere. Romans chapter 15, verse 30 through 31. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf, that I might be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my ministry in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. When Paul thinks about this, this new relationship between Jew and Gentile, and he talks about going to Jerusalem, he realizes that there is a danger. And so there's two things that he asks the church to pray about in Rome. He says, number one, he wants them to pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. Paul says when he is afraid, he is concerned that when he goes to Jerusalem, there are going to be people who will try to hurt him there. And he wants to be rescued. The word rescue means to be delivered from that, that, that coming punishment and that coming pain. And we find out in Acts 21, guess what happens? He goes... When he arrives there, we find that there is this uh, revolt that happens, and the people make an effort to kill him. That's Acts 21, 27, and following. And if it wasn't for the Roman guards, if it wasn't for the centurions, he would have been killed there. Why such a big deal? Paul comes and says, I've got a gift from the Gentiles to give to people in Jerusalem. And, and the Jewish non-Christians make an effort to kill him over the, because they still think that the only way to keep purity and holiness in God's presence is to be as far away from possible as Gentiles. And so Paul asks them to pray that when I go, that it will not be dangerous for me. There is a lesson in prayer here, which is you don't always get what you pray for. Because again, Acts 21, guess what did happen? He was almost killed and eventually went on trial as a result of taking this gift there. But the second thing he prays is that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. These are the Jewish Christians. And Paul knows there's still a faction of people out there that think there needs to be an arm's length between these two groups. And Paul says, I'm going to bring the money, and I hope that they're going to accept the money because it comes from whom? From the Gentiles. Have you ever had somebody that you've kind of had some conflict with? If they try to give you money, like, mm -mm, I'm not taking money from them. I mean, I'll take money from anyone, but not them. And Paul's concerned that this level of division is so strong that some people may even reject this gift. See, Paul has a vision of unity that not many people share. That the cross breaks down every division between Jew and Gentile. And I think we find that illustrated in what Paul says in Romans 16. We're not going to read this, but you should just notice there's a bunch of names in Romans 16. And the key thing about these names, I think, is the amount of diversity that's represented in the names. Some of the names are clearly Jewish. There's Aquila, Andronicus, Junia, Herodian, probably Pris Prisca, and Mary or Miriam, depending on your translation. And the rest are Gentiles. Some of the names that are listed are men, and some of the names listed are women. Some of the names listed are common amongst those who are slaves, and some of the names are common amongst those who are freemen. Some of the names represent people who are in the lower parts of their society, and some of the names represent those who are in the higher parts of the society. And yet Paul has one instruction for all of them, and he tells them this, to greet one another with a holy kiss. That doesn't leave an awful lot of room for separation when you greet one another with a holy kiss, does it? Give a warm welcome. Regardless of whether male or female, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, Paul says, welcome each other as if we belong to one another. Because Paul envisions the church being a kind of community that out there is going to look really, really strange. But in here, because of the cross, it fosters a new kind of relationship. 
There's one trait that Paul mentions most often in his uh, dealing with the church. I'm going to read them and see if you can be enough of a sleuth to figure out what concept is repeated in these statements. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Parisus, who has worked hard in the Lord. What word did you hear repeated there? Yeah. There's greeting, and then there's those who are working hard among us. Paul recognizes the church to be a place. Not only is there unity, but there's unity for a common purpose and a common mission. The language that Paul uses when he talks to Prisca and Aquila, when he addresses Urbanus, is the same word. It's the Greek word synergos. That word may sound familiar. We're going to get to that in just a minute. It's the prefix sin, which means to be with or together, and ergos, which is the word work. And if there's an English word that synergo sounds like, what word might that be? Synergy. Synergy is working together with one cause and with one purpose. So Paul envisions the church being a place where you have scattering of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different experiences who share in the cross, who come together. And what do they do? They work with one heart and with one purpose for continuing that mission that Paul is a part of, which is bringing about the obedience of those who do not yet know Christ. What's really interesting about this is Romans 6 was full of all of these, the prefix of S-Y-N. Paul's using it over and over again. These are the things that he says, we have been buried with him by baptism. Our old self was crucified with him, but we have also died with Christ. And we believe that we will also live with him. What Paul is getting at in the sense of using this word with is the recognition that the cross unites people not just to Jesus, but it unites us to everyone else who is united to the cross. And all of us who recognize what God has done in us recognize we have a new relationship with those in the family of God. See, the cross is the source of our synergy. I think Romans is essentially three stories in one. First, Romans is the story of a God who sent his son to bring us into a right relationship with him. Romans is the story of a God who by the very same gospel makes us holy, sanctified, righteous people. And it is also the story of a God who wants his children to work together despite whatever differences they may have for the common cause of continuing to share the story of what God has done in and through Christ Jesus. May we be the kind of a community that Paul envisioned there. May we be that kind of a community as we work together to share the good news message of Jesus Christ. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we remember, on our own we are incapable and insufficient, but we go from here with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you have any kind of a need this morning, you want somebody to pray with, you want somebody to talk with this morning, just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.